This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian church. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is God's word, and this is the passage that we've been looking at during the season of Lent. We've been looking at different pieces of armor that God gives us to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. So we've already considered the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, and today we come to the next item on the list. We're looking at the shoes of peace. Paul says that we should put on as shoes for our feet the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is how I'd like to approach this passage. I'd like to first consider the image of the shoes, make sure we understand the metaphor, so the image. Secondly, I'd like to think about the importance of the shoes in our battles. And thirdly, I'd like to suggest two implications briefly for our lives from this passage. Okay, let's make sure we understand what Paul is talking about here. He's looking at the shoes that a Roman soldier would typically wear. They were sort of half boots studded with hobnails. So you think of cleats, maybe the original cleats. That's what the Roman soldiers wore that actually made them uh, in a very effective military force because they could march long distances, they were protected, they were able to fight uh, on different terrain, they provided better traction so a soldier could dig in, kind of stand firm, as Paul tells us here, and fight no matter what the surface was. So whether it was icy or muddy or rocky, Roman soldiers were able to stand their ground and fight because of the equipment, because of the shoes. So the image here is of a Christian who is able to stand against the devil's attacks without slipping, without losing their balance, without falling. That's the image. So the gospel of peace makes us sure-footed, makes us stable, makes us unmovable. It allows us not to lose our footing not to yield, allows us to stand firm and be able to fight no matter what life circumstances are. The gospel of peace equips us, it prepares us, it makes us ready for the enemy's attacks. That's the image, that's the metaphor. Now, what is this gospel of peace that we are encouraged to put on so we would be protected from the enemy's attacks. The gospel is the good news from God himself that we have been reconciled to him, to God, through Jesus Christ, 
by His grace, and now we are at peace with God. It's the gospel of peace because it brings peace to us. It restores a relationship with God. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 23, gives us a good summary of what Paul means here by the gospel of peace. He says, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, you see the definition of the gospel, but you also see a lot of parallel uh, ideas here in, in, in Colossians 1. Paul talks about continuing in the faith, being stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. So this gospel makes us ready to resist the devil's attacks. It makes us stable and sure-footed so we can stand firm, stand against the devil's, uh, the devil's schemes. Now, we war at war. With God, we were His enemies, we were rebels against His rule, but Jesus came and in our place was executed for treason on our behalf. He gave His life as a ransom for us, and by His death and resurrection, He secured a pardon for us. So all who believe in Jesus, I want to be very clear, all who believe in Jesus have been forgiven by God. They have been reconciled to Him. And now, they are, we are at peace with Him. This is the gospel, that Jesus came and He did something in our place, on our behalf, and now we are reconciled. We've been brought into a relationship, into His family, into His kingdom. We are now at peace with God. And it's this gospel, this gospel of grace, this gospel of peace, the gospel of forgiveness, the gospel of substitution, it's this gospel that secures our footing in our battle against our and God's enemy. When we were at war with God, we were at peace with the devil. But now that we are at peace with God, we are at war with the devil. So we put on the shoes of peace and we protect ourselves. We stand firm. We stand against our enemy. Now, I want to ask this really important question now because every Sunday we've been looking at a particular scheme of the devil, a particular tactic that he uses. When we talked about the belt of truth, we talked about the devil being a liar. So, quite naturally, we put on truth to protect ourselves from his lies. Last week we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, that corresponds to the accusations of the devil. He accuses. He's an accuser. So he brings accusations, condemnation into our lives. And so we protect ourselves with the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. Now, the question is, which tactic does Paul have in mind here? What do the shoes of peace, the shoes of the gospel, what do they protect us from? What do they correspond to? 
And I think that, that this particular item, this particular piece of equipment for the Christian soldier correspond to the devil being a tempter. He's a tempter. So putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace prepares us to resist temptation. Now, if you're filling out kids' notes for your child, or if you are a child who's filling out their own notes, the devil tempts us. The devil tempts us, but the gospel protects us. The devil tempts us, but the gospel protects us. So we put on the shoes of peace to be protected from the devil's temptations. So let's talk about temptation and why the gospel is so important in resisting it. I think for a lot of people, a lot of Christians, temptation is simply a matter of being tempted to do something that's wrong. And so you say to yourself, I don't want to be wrong, I don't want to sin, so I'm not going to do it, and I'm going to try to hold on to something that's right, even though I want to do what's wrong, I want to sin, but I won't because I want to stay righteous, I want to stay true, I don't want to sin. But I think that's a very superficial view of temptation. I want to get pretty deep in how the devil works when he tempts us. Temptation always involves a value judgment. It's always about a value judgment. Remember that story in the Old Testament about Esau, who sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of stew? Do you remember that story? What happened there? How could anybody, right, take their inheritance, their position in the family, their birthright, and say, I'm going to give you all that if I could just have this one bowl of soup? How does that happen? It happened because Esau looked at, his, looked at his situation and he considered short-term satisfaction of his hunger more important than receiving his inheritance in the future. Value judgment. According to his values, according to his worldview, it was more important for him to eat then than hope and receive something more important in the future. In fact, he said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? See, that's how he processed it. In fact, the text says that he despised his birthright. Now later, Esau realized that he had overvalued food and undervalued his birthright. And all temptation works exactly this way. Satan presents something to us, something sinful, something wrong, and he attempts to convince us that it is, in fact, better than what we have. And so we are struggling to figure out, is it better or is it not better? And so you're making a value judgment. You're assessing, what is more important to me? Is it this that the Satan, Satan is offering to me, or is it something that God promises to me? That's temptation. That's what we all wrestle with. Now, let me share an example here from my own life. I set my alarm for the time when I, I have determined I need to get up and spend time with God in prayer and Bible reading. I have a plan. I have thought about it. I've considered that I have enough sleep. I can get up at that time, and this is a good time before my children awaken and I have to be with them. I give myself that time. I have calculated how much time I need, so I set my alarm. And I go to sleep when they, my alarm goes off, 
I wrestle. I struggle. Amen. <laughs> I am tempted to stay in bed. And my decision largely depends on what I value more in the moment. Do I believe that sleep or comfort or warmth is more important? Or do I believe that spending time with my God is more important? So I'm making a value judgment. And my choice actually reveals what is more important to me. If I have slept with my gospel shoes on, I remember how important my relationship with God is. How much Jesus gave up so I can get up in the morning and draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. If I remember that, if the shoes of gospel peace are on my feet, if my mind is clear in perceiving the reality of what God has done for me, if my heart is warm to that reality, I get up. But if my mind is not controlled by the gospel, if I don't have the sure footing of the shoes of peace, I slip, I fall, you see? And I choose something that ultimately isn't more important, but it is more important to me now in the moment. The shoes of the gospel of peace can give me a sure footing and enable me to resist temptation. Resisting temptation is largely a matter of the right perspective. If I am standing sure-footed on the gospel, I can assess accurately what the devil offers to me. I can see it in the right context. I can determine what is important short-term, what is important long-term. I can recognize sin masquerading as virtue. I can detect whether my physical or rational, emotional, or spiritual inclinations are in sync with God's reality. The gospel gives me the right perspective, which is essential to resisting temptation. You see, unless I know what reality is, unless I'm rooted in it, unless I'm sure-footed on it, unless my cleats are dug in, you see, I will just make the wrong choice. I'll make the wrong judgment. My perspective will be off, and my choices, of course, will also be off. Let me give you an example of how important perspective is. Amber Scher is an artist who's been working on a curious project. It's called Subpar Parks. Subpar Parks. Scher puts real, terrible reviews of national parks over stunning graphics of park landscapes. So when you look at her work, it's a poster that you would normally think is a promotional poster. It's an advertisement to go to that particular national park. However, when you read the writing on the poster, you realize it's a terrible negative review of that park. So for example, one visitor uh, to Yellowstone wrote, save yourself some money, boil some water at home. A disappointed visitor to Yosemite wrote, Trees block view, and there are too many gray rocks. 
A review of Great Smoky Mountains National Park reads, nothing specific to do. Some of us can relate to that one, I think. Sequoia Na National Park prompted this response, there are bugs and they will bite you on your face. <laughs> Very I don't think it's hypothetical, I think this was a real experience. I'll give you one more review of a national park. No cell service and terrible Wi-Fi. <laughs> now, what happened? Why is it that so many people, millions of people, enjoy all sorts of national parks, right? And yet some leave disappointed. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of expectations. It's a matter of what you value more. If you value cell reception more than nature, you're going to be disappointed. Putting on the shoes of the gospel means to prioritize your relationship with God through Christ. It means to recognize that the devil cannot offer you anything better than what you already have in Christ. If you are dissatisfied with God, you're going to be wobbly in your understanding of what you have in Christ. If you are not confident that to follow Jesus is absolutely the best thing in the world, you're going to be susceptible to all sorts of temptations. Your footing is not secure. The devil can push you around. He can make you slip and fall. The sure footing of the gospel means that you believe that you have experienced that it's real to you that following Jesus is actually best. And whatever God has given you is best. And the devil simply doesn't have the resources to outbid God. He doesn't have anything better to offer to you. But to discern that, to assess that, to make that value judgment in the moment, you need the sure footing of the gospel. Let me tell you about my friend's conversion. Igor was a friend from home, from Ukraine, who did not grow up with any sort of religious influence in his life, like many, most people did when I was growing up, somehow he met and quickly fell in love with a Baptist girl. That's trouble. That's trouble right there. Even worse, friends, she was a pastor's daughter. <laughs> the best opportunity to see her, of course, was at church. And so Eager listened to sermons and hymns and heard the gospel. However, it wasn't his future father-in-law's preaching that converted him. It was a conversation he overheard. His people one Sunday were leaving church and were gathering outside in front of the church. Eager was standing outside, probably waiting to catch a glimpse of the Baptist princess. And he overheard the pastor talking to someone just a few yards away. And he overheard him saying to someone, I've been walking with Christ for a long time now, and I have gone through some very painful things in my life. But one thing I have learned is that it is better with Jesus than without him. It is better with Jesus than without him. And this is a man who was imprisoned, was persecuted during those times. If you were a pastor, you... You counted on doing some time in prison. This is a person who has experienced difficult, painful things in life and now was able to say, it's still better to have Jesus than 
anything else I could imagine. And Eager's heart melted. It was that comment that connected the gospel to his heart. This is what converted him. He ended up, of course, marrying the girl, and they are now actually in ministry. He became a pastor himself. So my question to us this morning is, do you believe, do you honestly believe that it is better to have Jesus than anything else in the world? And whatever you go through in life, whatever hardship or difficulties that you go through life, that it is still better to have Jesus. And that the devil can't, he doesn't have anything to offer you that would trump what Jesus has already done for you. When the devil tempts us, he challenges our perspective. He challenges our perspective. He challenges our relationship with God. You know, if he is not able to make us forget what we have in Christ, he's going to try to twist our perspective. He's going to try to point out that our relationship with God actually isn't at all what we think it is. He tries to convince us that we have misjudged God, that he is different. So, for example, when we suffer, when you're in pain, when you're hurting, the devil tempts us to become bitter. He tries to convince us that we are suffering because God is punishing us. But what does the gospel of peace say? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you put those shoes on, you dig in your cleats, and you resist the devil. When we are faced with failure, the devil tempts us to give in to despair and think that God cannot possibly love us. But what does the gospel of peace say? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it now. Dig in your, your gospel shoes. When we lack something in life, the devil tempts us to become angry at God. He tries to convince us that God does not care about us. Otherwise, he would provide this thing we need. But what does the gospel of peace say? If you have your shoes on, if you've, you've dug in, you're sure-footed, you hear the gospel, and the gospel says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When there's uncertainty in your life, the devil tempts us to live in fear. What does the gospel of peace say? Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When our life seems good and maybe you are now in a season of prosperity, the devil tempts us to forget God. So why, why do you need him? Things are fine. But what does the gospel of peace say to that? For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So you put on your gospel shoes and you stand firm. And even though the devil challenges our perspective, even though he challenges our relationship with God, if you have the shoes on, if you remember the gospel, if it's been real to you, you can easily resist 
these temptations. Now let me illustrate it from probably the best passage on temptation in Scripture, and that's Matthew 4, where we learn about Jesus' own experience of temptation. I am so thankful that our Lord went through those experiences, not only to do it on our behalf to redeem us, but also to show us how we too can resist temptation. Jesus was in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And let's see what the devil does here and how Jesus responds by standing firm in his relationship with the Father. He's doing what he is calling us to do. Now first, the tempter says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now what is the devil really saying? He's saying it's more important to eat than to obey God. It's more important to eat than to obey God. He is checking Jesus' value system. And Jesus responds, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, I trust God's commands. They are good commands to me. They appear to be good things that God wants from me. And so I trust his words, and I will not sell my birthright for a bowl of soup or a loaf of bread. Jesus' feet are firmly planted in God's reality, in God's perspective, in relationship with him. Then the tempter takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, by the way, the devil seems to know some scripture at least, it says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Notice how the devil begins with, if you are the Son of God. He wants, he wants to check Jesus' relationship with the Father. He says, you are here, hungry and alone. Does God really love you? Make him prove it. That's the temptation. May God prove that he loves you. And Jesus responds, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says, I do not need God to prove his love for me. I already know it. I rest in his love. You see, his shoes are firmly, firmly um, uh, grounded. He's, he's standing on God's promises. He's standing on the reality of his relationship with the Father. And finally, the tempter takes Jesus to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The devil says, I will love you better than your father loves you. He's checking to see how secure and satisfied Jesus is in his relationship with the Father. So he's pushing on Jesus. He's looking for cracks. He's, he's looking to make him slip, make him fall. This is exactly what the devil does with us when he tempts us. Are you really secure in your relationship with God? Do you really have the right perspective? Can you really trust him? Do you really believe that his commands are good for you? And so Jesus responds, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the... I'm sorry, different verse. He responds, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he says, be gone, Satan, be gone. 
God's love is better than all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. He says, I will never sacrifice my relationship with the Father. And the devil leaves. He leaves. There's nothing more he can do. There's nothing more he can say. Jesus has the right perspective. He is secure in his relationship with God. He is satisfied with God's love. And so he cannot be moved. He's standing firm. His feet fitted with the gospel of peace. His perspective is right. His value judgments are accurate. If you hope to resist temptation and to protect yourself against the devil's schemes, you need to stand sure-footed on the gospel of God's grace in Jesus. This is how you can keep the right perspective. This is how you can assign proper value to things given by God or offered by Satan. You need to remember the gospel. You need to base your life on it. Never have your thoughts too far from it. Never have your heart too cold toward it. Let me give you an illustration of how this can work. The writer Brett Lott tells about a life-changing day in his life. When he was teaching at Vermont College, he spent the morning talking to his agent about his book. He had just signed a contract, received and spent the advance on this new book, wrote the book, and realized the book is terrible. So he's talking to his agent, and they're discussing what to do next. At lunch, he noticed that one of his students was not there at lunch. Usually he was. So another student went to check on him and found his door, door to his room locked. So they got security and forced the door open or unlocked the door and realized very quickly that the student had passed away that morning. He had a brain aneurysm, died, slumped in his desk chair while reading a book. And the book he was reading was one of Brett Lott's novels. And this was a sobering moment for Lott. He realized that we are grass, that our life is not guaranteed to us, And he spent a morning fretting over this contract, over this book. And yet at the same time, a man died. And so he kind of was shaken by that. In the afternoon, of course, the college, the small college, had to figure out what to do. Nobody had ever died there, so they tried to figure out what to do with the body. And so they asked Lot to man the phones while the administration was dealing with that. As he was manning the phones, he gets a call, and somebody says... I'm calling from Chicago, and my boss wants to speak with you. And so he takes the call, and it's Oprah Winfrey. Same day. And Oprah says, we're going to have so much fun. I've picked your book to be my new book club selection. I want you to come do the show. And everything changes for the struggling writer, right? All in a day, everything changes. Almost instantly, Brett Lodd becomes an incredibly successful author, experiences a high level of fame, makes money, is known in, very, in, in certain circles. Almost instantly, everything changes for him. But he decides in that moment to never forget that day and the lesson he learned. He knows that temptations will come. And by the way, he is a committed Christian. 
Temptations will come with this fame and money. He knows that. And so he's thinking, how do I remember this day? That as I was thinking about my book, as I was talking to my agent, agent, a man died and we are like grass. And the Lord can take me at any moment. So he decides to put a name, the name of the person who died, that student, on an index card, put it in his pocket, and he said every time he went on the Oprah show or he did an interview or he was the Oprah guy for whatever that long time that it was, his book was selling very, very well, always in his pocket, in his pants, he said anytime I put on pants, I had this index card in my pocket that simply had the name of the guy who had died, Jim Ferry. And he says, every time I would do something like this and I would feel this, this degree of fame or degree of success, he said, I would just touch that card in my pocket and I would think of Jim Ferry. And it would ground him. It would give him the right perspective. It would allow him to resist the temptations that the devil brought his way. Now, I think it's not uncommon at all today for a young Christian to achieve a high level of success and then announce that all that stuff about God and sin and heaven and hell and the Bible and sexual ethics that the Bible teaches that they used to believe is no longer important to them. In fact, we are hearing more and more stories like that where a Christian gets into a particular industry or particular of entertainment venue, and then they become big, they become popular, and then there's an announcement that is posted. I have realized that all that stuff I believed, I no longer believe. And they pick a worldview that fits much better with the people that praise them, that pay for their product, that accept them, their cultural peers. Now, what happened? What happened to a person like that? What happens to a person who begins the journey as a Christian? and attempts to hold on to their Christianity, and then at the end of that journey, they realize that they don't believe any of that anymore. Haven't tasted success, haven't heard the applause, the admiration of others, haven't received money. They've realized that it's better. What they have now is better than being a Christian. They've given into temptation. Their perspective is off. Like Esau They have overvalued success and acclaim, and they have undervalued their God. I think it happens in many cases because they did not have the shoes of the gospel of peace on their feet when temptation came. They could not stand their ground. They did not keep an index card with the name of the one who died for them in their pocket as they were doing interviews, as they were hearing people applaud as they were receiving praise, they forgot the beauty and power of the gospel of peace. And so they fell. Now let me finish with two implications for us. Given these stories, given the reality of what the devil does with us, my first implication is that Cultivating a relationship with God is the most important thing in a Christian's life. Cultivating a relationship with God is the most important thing in the Christian's life. How important is it for you? The more satisfied you are in Christ, the less susceptible you are to the devil's schemes. That's the correlation. 
The tighter your grasp on the gospel is, the greater your ability to resist temptation is. Is the relationship with God by grace through Christ and the power of the Spirit foundational in your life? Not whether you have it, not whether you agree with the Bible. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking whether this relationship is central, foundational. It permeates your life. It's the most important thing for you. It's, it's how your perspective is shaped. It's what matters to you the most. It's your highest priority in life. Is it true in your life? Does it determine your perspective? Is it of highest priority and value? So that when the devil comes to you and he offers something to you, you can easily say, what I have with Christ is so much better. Why would I take this? Does it determine how you respond to the devil? Are your feet planted in the ground? You have the kind of shoes that won't let you slip, that won't let you fall. So you can stand firm against whatever temptation the devil is going to throw at you. That's the first implication. And I, I pray and I plead with you this morning, you Christians, I'm going to address the believers. I plead with you today, cultivate that relationship. Put everything you have in that relationship. Be there with God. Listen to his words. Go to him with whatever you're going through. Gather with God's people. Serve in the way he wants you to serve. Obey his commands. Do all of that because that is the one relationship you cannot afford to neglect. Now secondly, my second final implication. It is our relationship with God that motivates us to share the gospel with others. It is our relationship with God that motivates us to share the gospel with others. While our passage largely describes the Christian's defensive posture, and the main application thrust of this whole passage has to do with standing firm against the devil. So against evil, we're protecting ourselves. The armor is protective. There is also an evangelistic application. And we see that later in the text, Paul talks about his ministry and requests prayers for his ministry. He is on the offensive. And so we should be as well. Now listen to one commentator. He says, Paul's expression points to a readiness that derives from the good news of peace, which has been appropriated by believers. Because this mighty announcement of reconciliation has become powerful in their lives, they will not only resist the evil influences of the powers and withstand temptation, but they also carry the attack into enemy territory by sharing and proclaiming this good news with others. One of the devil's goals is to neutralize you in battle. Giving into temptation can be incredibly damaging, not only to you, certainly to you, but not only to you, but to the cause of Christ. So resist temptation by keeping your feet planted in the gospel and then go and share that same gospel of peace with others. These boots are not only made for standing. <laughs> it sounded better on the page when I wrote it. 
These boots are also made for walking. <laughs> Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Our God reigns. Have you received this news with joy yourself? Are you a follower of Christ? If you're not at peace with God, you are at peace with the devil. But if you make peace with God now by faith, yes, you will be at war with the devil, yes, and you will experience some weird stuff in your life, but you will be at peace with God. And to be with God is, is infinitely better than to be with the devil. And God will take care of you, and God will never let you fall if you put your feet right onto his gospel. So are you at peace with God today? I call you to conversion. If you're not, I call you to embrace what Jesus has done for you by faith. And for those of us who are believers, I call you to evangelism. I call you to share this good news with others. I call you to tell others what Jesus has done for them. Especially at this time. Now we are, always need to be evangelistic, always looking for opportunities, but there are more opportunities now, it seems. So many people are gripped with fear. They don't know what's going to happen. Their lives are disrupted now. Isn't that a great chance for us Christians to say, we have hope. <laughs> we have hope. We have the good news of happiness to give you. Good news of salvation to give you. So let us be mindful of what is happening around us. Let us be sensitive to people who are maybe asking questions to which only we have the answer.